How often do you think, I wish people were more direct? Just told me what they thought. Don't hold back. Maybe you're the direct person that people are looking for. Uh, but it's likely you too wish that other people were more direct, just, just kind of told you where things stood. Just, just tell me. I, I just want to know. It seems that people would rather not hurt your feelings or, or fail to take a stand on an issue that you think that they clearly should take a stand on. However you think, if people were more direct, this world would be a better place. At least I know what you think. At least I know what you would believe. But be careful. If you really want a direct answer to your question, your status, your future prospects, there's probably a pretty good chance you're not going to like the answer. At least as it relates to you. If, you. if you think about it, imagine yourself in this scenario. Waiting for promotion, you're at work. Your boss calls you in. Kind of beats around the bush a little bit, kind of small talk. And you just blurt out what's on your mind. You didn't think you said it, but you actually said it. It's like, just tell me where I stand. Am I going to get this or not? And you wish, maybe I shouldn't have opened my mouth. Because he or she gave it to you straight. You didn't like the answer. And in today's climate, directness, you can say, of the political favor can either land you on the, we'll call it the canceled list or the virtuous list, depending on the one who's asking you. But to be honest, neither of these lists are, are really bad. Because one of them is they were canceled for all the wrong reasons. Let's prop them up and kind of make them a champion for our cause. Or, well, this person's on the right side of history. Let's, let's, really, let's really give it to them. And so think about today's question posed to Jesus at the beginning of this passage. They said, well, just, just tell us plainly. Are you the Christ? We just, we just want to know. But you think, it's actually not that Jesus has, has not answered this before. He's answered this probably three or four times pretty directly. He's not being coy. He's not being private. He tells them, and he tells you over and over and over again, I am the Christ. I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. It's not because I haven't told you. It's just because you don't believe. You, just want, you don't want it to be true. They ask, you see, not because they want to know. Maybe you ask, and you actually don't want to know. But because you want to revile well, like, I have a better explanation for this. Not, not yours, but I think this is better. And so I'll ask a question that we'll answer, and I hope you can answer. Is Jesus' good, is Jesus's answer, is that good news for you? Is his being Christ, is that good news for you? Or do you just kind of write it off? You see, Jesus is the good shepherd from the beginning of this chapter, and he tells and shows at the beginning of John 10... Whose sheep hear his voice? He says that again at the end of John 10. So you can tell he's kind of combining these two. He's like, my sheep hear this. They're, they know I'm the Christ. I tell them and they believe it. You're not the sheep. I can tell you until so you're blue in the face and you're not going to believe me. You're not going to trust me. He confronts the Jewish leaders 
and he confronts you. And as he confronts them at the end of John 10, it's the last time. It's the last conversation he has with them before his Passion Week. And so we're going to see this in three points, this question and his answer. First, in the works of Christ, verses 22 to 30. Because he says the end, but he also he tells you, he shows you at the beginning, that he's the Christ by what he's done. He's told them, but he's like, I've done it. You can see it with your eyes. You can see this. And then second is dealing with Christ, verses 31 to 38. The Jews, they are forced to respond. The Pharisees, the leader of Israel, they're forced to respond. And you're forced to respond too. So how do you respond? Because you have to deal with Christ. Not that there is there are some who do and some who don't. It's everyone has to deal with Christ. It is how do you respond to his answer? And lastly is believing in Christ. Verses 39 to 42. This is the last chapter. He's in Jerusalem before he's crucified. He leaves. Only to find the Gentiles believe in him across the Jordan. And that's you. Those who believe in him. And so I, I hope and pray that this comes clear throughout to you. You can hear Jesus' confession because he is your redeemer. So we're going to start in point one, the works of Christ, in verse 22. This is in Jesus deeply moved the earth earlier than that. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. So this is the Feast of Dedication, which if you know your Old Testament really well, doesn't exist in your Old Testament. It's not in the Pentateuch. It's not in the Psalms, not in Wisdom. It's in the Prophets. The first and only occasion we get this is in Ezra and Nehemiah, the Feast of Dedication. So it's actually not an original feast. It's not like the Passover. It's not like the Feast of Booze, Tabernacles, First Fruits. It's not one of those. It's a feast that commemorates the reconstruction of the temple. The temple's flattened in in mid-500s B.C. It's raised again under Ezra and Nehemiah. We can read about that in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Exiles are brought back to the temple. So when they're rededicating the temple, they have a huge celebration. And that's what Jesus walks into, is that feast of celebration. So this, you can imagine, was a huge feast. We've been exiled for years. Seventy plus years at one point, and they had another exile for that. We've been exiled for so long, and we're back. Let's party. So fittingly, Jesus, who is the temple, comes to the feast commemorating the temple. The glory of Yahweh, who filled the tabernacle, then the temple, with his heavy presence, so heavy that the high priest had to shield himself by burning incense. He's like, I can't handle the glory of God. I have to burn incense so I can see. Or it's actually, so I can see. So the question the Jews ask in verse 24 is both perplexing, because they should know, and it's fitting. If you look at the question, verse 24, is if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It's, it's, it's another way to translate it. Tell us boldly. Tell us without pretense. Don't hide anything from us. Just, just tell us. 
We have a question, just give us the right answer. But how much more plain must Jesus be that he is the Son of Man, the sent one of God, the glory of Yahweh in the flesh, the eternal one with the Father? He's said this multiple times. He has five miracles before, actually six miracles before this. Six miracles where he tells them and then shows them, I'm the guy you're looking for. I'm the one that all the Old Testament pointed towards. So he, he has been plain since John 1. I haven't hidden from you. You see it, you just don't believe it. You have hard hearts. So you've got to wonder, why are you asking him again? Maybe their question is the same question you have today as well. Maybe you ask, is Jesus really who he says he is? Did he actually do these things? Is he actually from God? Is he actually eternal? Is he actually a Messiah? Because I think anyone who asks this probably knows deep down if their question, if your question is answered directly, you got to deal with it. In one way or the other, because the ramifications are life-changing. So to ask it is to invite the answer that you may not like. To not ask the question is not have to deal with the answer. But to ask it, you have to deal with the answer, whether for or against. So has Jesus failed himself? Has he, has he hidden anything? In a, in a sense, he has. His hour has not yet come, so, that, so you can say that the fullness of his deity, the fullness, fullness of what he's come to do has not been completely revealed. Everything he's about to do has not been as of yet completely revealed to them. We still have more in the gospel to go through. So in a sense, yes, he's been veiled in a sense. But really, ultimately, no, he's not been veiled. He has told them plainly. He has told you plainly who he is. As he spends nine chapters before this, John 1 through 9, explaining and displaying his divine identity. He said over and over and over and over again. He's told them, and he's shown them. He's proclaimed it by miracles, by actions, by deeds, by raising the sick. In the next chapter, raising the dead. He says, I told you. Yeah. I told you. But you don't believe. Not that I've kept it from you, not that I've hidden, but you don't believe. So it's, it's not lack of knowledge that they're dealing with. It's not lack of knowledge that you're dealing with if you don't believe. It's hardness of heart. You have enough information. He even connects it with what he said earlier. But do not believe, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep or not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. So again, your problem is not that I haven't told you. Your problem is that you have hard heart. You do not believe. You're like Pharaoh. You saw everything. You saw the ten plagues. And you don't believe. You've got unregenerate hearts. He's telling them, the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel... They've got control of the temple. They've been teaching Israel for hundreds of years. You are not my sheep. You who lead Israel, you are not my sheep. This is not like 
you're of older part, now the newer has come, and so there's a little bit of similarity. It's like, you are not of my sheep, and you're teaching others how to not be my sheep. Not how to be my sheep. So you might have heard this, believing in Christ is not a leap of faith. Not like you have to jump over an obstacle. It's like, oh, this, there's not much information I have to go off of. It's really difficult. But it's ears to hear. That's how you believe. Because he said this so many times. For Christ has come to give life to you, his sheep. As he says in verse 28. And that's, that's what allows you to believe in Christ. Is once you have life, then you see him. Not, you see him and then you have life. You're given all the benefits and then you believe. Yes, Jesus, I believe who you are. You actually enter in and like, that's, that's you. You're the one. You're the one who saved me. It's not generated from within. You don't have to like conjure this up. Enough evidence and then once you get there, the tipping point, then I'll believe in him. It's as he gives you access. He tells you, I'm the Christ. And he gives you the ability to believe. And this confession, your ability to see Jesus as the Christ, what's incredible is it's not like anything you learn as a kid, you're going to forget by the time you're an adult. Not like the math you learned in, in grade school, and like, I have no idea how to do math anymore. You don't lose it. You don't lose this knowledge. You don't lose this, this confession. You, you, you can't be taken from God's hand. God's grip holds you. That's what keeps you. You can't be plucked. You can't be snubbed. You can't be stolen. You are eternally secure in his hand because he purchased you. He gave you access to his son. Or his son gave you access to him. And this could be hard. It, it can, it's this, this theoretical, like, yeah, I can't be taken away. Because there are times in your life, I'm sure, just like mine, that you're, like, you're really on fire. I can't wait to read. I've read three hours of the Bible today. I've, I've listened to a ton of sermons. Things are going really well in my life. Like, yeah, I really feel a part of God's firm grip. Things are going well for me today. And you know as well as I do, it's usually the next day or the next hour that a dry spell happens. You hear bad news, you're fired, your kid leaves, something is going on in your life, and you're like, well, God, where are you? I thought, it was, I thought it was in your grip. I thought I couldn't be pulled away. But your eyes to see, your ears to hear, and your heart to believe, while, while in some ways it waxes and wanes, it comes in and goes out, it doesn't stop. There might be a wave to it, good days and bad days, but it doesn't cease. Because as Jesus says, and this is where he grounds it, you're wondering, well, how, how, how do I know this is true? How do I know I can't be plucked? Because what Jesus says, not, I'm really strong, I believe really hard, I have really good days, more good days than I have bad days. It's because Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That's why you can't be plucked. That's why you can't leave. That's why he doesn't loosen his grip on you. And there you see it. He says plainly again, 
yep, I'm the Christ. By saying, I and the Father are one. He's calling himself God. I am sent from God. I am God. You better believe in me. And maybe like the Pharisees, you've asked, are you the Christ? But do you like his answer? Because he doesn't hide it from you. He says, yes, I am. You got to deal with me. You believe in me or do you not? This brings us to point two, dealing with Christ. And we're going to see how they deal with Christ. Verses 31 to 38. Because in verse 31, you have no doubts that they know exactly what he said. They asked him, answer us plainly, and he does. And look how they respond in verse 31. They pick up stones to kill him. They're not in the dark. This is not a, you can call it a real question that they actually want answered. Do you actually want to know if Jesus is who he says he is? Do you really want to know? It's the third time in this gospel so far that they pick up stone to cast at Jesus. Number three. They've done it twice before. They've asked him a question. He says, I am God, and they want to throw stones at him. This is the hardness of heart looking for opportunities to, you could say, smear or mar Jesus' name. Not a heartfelt attempt at figuring out who he is. Because if they're right, he's a blasphemer. He's calling God him. If they're right, Jesus is wrong. If they're throwing stones at him and they're right, then we got Jesus wrong. This is a big deal. The Messiah, the anointed of God, the, the Christ, is he who does the will of the Father. He does it perfectly. Who is sent from the Father to redeem that which is the Father's. So Jesus responds when they pick up stones and says, you're a blasphemer. And he says, what have I done to deserve this? What works are you actually condemning me for? For which of these are you going to stone me? Pharisees who know the law so well, though, and this is the ironic part about them lifting up stones, is where are they right now? We were just told. They're in the temple. Are you supposed to stone anybody in the temple? No. You're supposed to cast them out of the temple and then stone them. So what are they doing? They're breaking the law, trying to catch somebody breaking the law. They're trying to pick up stones to cast at who they think is a blasphemer, breaking the law, trying to find somebody breaking the law. Because anything dead in the temple defiles it. If they actually succeed and kill Jesus right there, they've defiled the temple. They have to go through a cleansing ceremony, a ritualistic ceremony. That's given to us in the book of Leviticus. They have to cleanse it. It's similar to what they brought in the adulterous woman from John 8, because they want to stone her in the temple. And bringing an adulterous woman, not to mention the adulterous man that she should have brought, into the temple. So try to uphold the law, they're breaking it. So in verse 33, like so often the case in the Gospel of John, 
They speak better than they know. This is verse 33. We are going to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. It like, should roll up with you because he is God. What he just did proves your points. You actually, you, you got the answer right, but your heart is wrong. You know exactly who he is. It's not that he made himself God. He came as God. Born fully man and fully God. So you can, you can tell them, you, you asked the question that you actually didn't want the answer to. You had the answer that you didn't want. And now you want to kill him. So how did Jesus respond to this accusation? Or more appropriately, how does he respond to, you could say, a better word than they know? Like Pilate, when he wipes his hands clean of Jesus, saying, I find no guilt in this man. They're kind of doing the same thing. They don't know what they're saying, but they're, they're saying the right thing, effectively. And Jesus quotes a psalm, and it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of odd, the, the one he quotes. He says, Is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? And he continues through verse 36. This is after verse 34. If you, if you called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. It's an odd argument from Jesus. If you read, this is from Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is not very long. It's about 10 verses. And it's striking, because as, as far as, as most scholars are sure, those who I looked up, they're pretty sure that Jesus is, is using this argument, what they call from the lesser to the greater. If you called whom in Psalm 82 were actually bad judges, unrighteous, or fallen angels, if you call them gods, and I call myself God, why do you condemn me? So he works from the lower rung to the higher rung. If Yahweh can call these fallen judges, that's what Psalm 82 is all about, as these fallen judges, unjust, not proclaiming the word of God, and actually taking down those who are of God. Then why do these Pharisees, who probably represent the fallen ones in Psalm 82, why do you have such a hard time recognizing Jesus as God? So he's actually using them as like, you're the ones in Psalm 82 that's being talked about. So why do you have a hard time calling me God? And so the psalm was lamenting false teachers, those leading Israel's, or Yahweh's people, away from him, dealing shrewdly and unjustly with the poor and contrite of heart who are of Yahweh. Which fits so well in this context. Because in chapter 9, who does Jesus heal but the blind man, the one who was begging outside the fence, who's saying, I can't do anything for myself, I can't see. He's the blind, the destitute, and the Pharisees are the ones who are unjustly going over him, ruling over him. So he's actually using Psalm 82 beautifully in different aspects, against those who are ruling falsely, and also saying, if, if God can call them gods, small g gods, why do you have a hard time calling me God? So the Messiah is, is he 
whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world from verse 37. If you know the Old Testament anointing of, of, of priests, that was a consecration ceremony. Anointing. Messiah is, is the word, Hebrew word for anointing. Anointing a priest. So here he's saying, whom the Father consecrated. You can say, whom the Father anointed. That's Messiah language. He's like, I'm, I'm the Messiah. I was anointed by God. I was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And sent into the world, which is what the Messiah does. Anointed by the Spirit to be sent from God to do God's word, to do God's work. But Jesus was not anointed by any human, because the, the, the Levites and the Aaronites, they're anointed by other Levites and Aaronites. But Jesus was not anointed by a human. No hands were placed on him, says, now you are a priest. Because he's not of a human line, priestly wise, anointed by the Holy Spirit. Which is why they have a hard time with him. You don't come from the priestly class. Messiah's got to come from a priestly class. How, how, do you, how are you going to do the things that you say you're going to do? So he continues in verses 37 to 38, describing to the Pharisees, so it's an odd few verses talking about the works and what he does. But if I can summarize it, he's effectively saying this. If you do not believe I am the Christ by the signs I have performed, if you just look at the works, how would you believe what I said? All the things that I did, you can see those. But you don't believe those things. So why would you think you can believe what I said? He's kind of working from the greater to the lesser now. Because he has told them and he has shown them and he has shown you. You can hear the exasperation in Jesus' voice. What else do I have to show you? How else do I describe myself to you? You're supposed to know me. You're supposed to love me. You're supposed to teach me. You, like, you know my law. What else do I have to do? It's, it's utter rejection. We've heard your law, but we don't want you. The chosen people, the royal priesthood, consecrated to Yahweh, They've now rejected Jesus. We know your law. We don't want you. You're not the one. So everyone has to deal with this Jesus. Not a Jesus you construct in your mind or a Jesus of popular culture, the Jesus of the Bible. So how can you be part of this sheepfold? This brings us to our last point, believing in Christ. Because there's only two responses. There's no laxity. It's not looking at Jesus like, well, he was kind of good. He might have done some of the things, but, you know, I can kind of deal with him or not deal with him. There's only two responses. One is belief and trust. The other is hatred. There's no middle ground. Because if there's middle ground, you don't see what Jesus is actually doing. You don't see who he's claiming to be. You can hear from John's words that this was an all-too-often occurrence when people were confronted by him. It wasn't, well, think about it. That's interesting. Let me mull it over. It was either, let's throw stones at the blasphemer who's crazy, or let's confess him. 
They hear, as maybe some of you do, who, who Jesus says he is, and this is what you want to do to him. It's like, I got I to gotta take him down. I don't want to listen to him. Or I got to take those down who trust in him. I got to mar their name in some way. I got I to figure out what to do with these Jesus followers. And to be honest, I respect that position for those who hate Jesus. That's the only other confession I expect other than trust. But look at what happens in verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Because before he'd come into Jerusalem and then go back out of Jerusalem, then come into Jerusalem and go back out of Jerusalem. And he stays outside. And he says, nope, I'm not, I'm not going back. It's innocent sounding at first, we can kind of gloss over it, but it's Jesus has left Jerusalem for the last time until his Passion Week, until he's put on the cross. The very glory of the temple, the very physical presence of the fullness of Yahweh has left the temple. They reject me. I reject them. And this, if you remember verse 22, what feast are they at? The dedication of the temple. When they're supposed to recognize the temple. They have the temple in front of them. And they say, no. We don't want it. When you should hear rejoicing that the king, priest, and prophet has come at last, but instead of rejoicing, they pick up stones and want to kill him. And as the glory of Yahweh has left the temple, leading his people into hundreds of years of exile before this, then he comes back. So now Jesus leaves the temple, not for hundreds of years, but eternally leaves the temple. That little exile is a picture of what he was about to do. Like I left there for little bits. How do you like for a long time, if not forever, me leaving you? But in verses 41 to 42, kind of out of nowhere, you get belief. And many came to him, verse 41, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. You can say, they heard Jesus' confession. is like, yes, we trust in you. Asked deceitfully by the Pharisees whether or not he was the Christ. And rejected when he said, I am the Christ. Those across the Jordan. Those are not Jews. Those are Gentiles. They accept him. Saying, yeah. You are who you say you are. We trust in you. And a remarkable thing about Jesus is that he came back to Jerusalem. He's not negotiating with them anymore. He's saying, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to put myself on that cross so that you who rejected me might believe in me. And then I will give you what I had, what I have. Because in the rejection of Jesus, of all things, the rejection of Jesus is where you're accepted. When you rejected Jesus, and he says, I'm going to accept you, and then cause you to accept me. 
I'm going to make you accept me. When he could have just left you, departed you and says, nope, I'm good. What should have happened, this is what should have happened. You were cast out of the temple. He stayed there and says, good luck. Try to figure this righteousness on your own. But what he did is he says, no, I'm going to take your rejection, place it on me, being treated as rejected, and then bring you in. Bring you into myself. He takes that one, goes back to Jerusalem, allows himself to be placed on the cross for your iniquity, and then who's cast out? God casts out Jesus. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Why have you cast me out? And not cast out those who rejected me. He actually brought them in. He did this that you might be brought into a sheepfold to hear his voice, to be grasped eternally by the triune Godhead when Jesus rose from the dead. And he says, this is yours. Take it. He was treated, Jesus was, as though he had rejected Yahweh, as if all the things the Pharisees just did that Jesus did. He says, I will take that on, and I will give you my obedience. I will give you my righteousness under the law. I will place you in the temple that I was rejected from. He was treated as though he was rejected so that the Spirit might apply that obedience to you. And now you get it. Now you have this. By his very obedience, his perfect obedience, he redeems you out of your disobedience. So that when Jesus the Christ calls you, you respond and say, yes, I can hear you. I trust in you. You are the Christ. And you will hear him forever. Let's pray. Lord, this is good news for us. That your son looked not upon the obedience on the, on, in the world, because there, <coughs> there is none. But he looked upon us, he took upon himself our sin, our rejection, our disobedience to the law, our disobedience to your word, placed it upon himself, died with it, and his resurrection, his ascension to your right hand, he sends back down the Spirit to give us his righteousness to give us his obedience and says, those who rejected me, I paid for them. I accepted them. I took them in. And therefore, you, O Lord, you took us in. And we will never be cast out again. There will be no exile. It will be fully, eternally, in your temple, dedicated forever. And we rejoice in your presence and hear you forever. We thank you and we praise you all this in your son's name. Amen.